Welcome to Chowder and Grits. Today is Thursday, June 20th. We are the podcast for ACC and Hokies football. I'm Justin Cochola alongside Tim Hurst. Tim, we have got a big show today. Andy Bitter, beat writer for Virginia Tech football from The Athletic, is on our show to talk a little bit of Hokies football. We're going to bring it to you in parts. So today will be part one. Part two is going to come to you on Monday. We're talking all things, a little bit about Andy's background, uh, focus on recruiting. He's got a couple of really good articles up on The Athletic, so if you're not a member of The Athletic, be sure to go on there and join it right now. Good story about how uh, uh, what what Virginia Tech would look like from a recruiting standpoint if they only recruited the state of Virginia. You know, would they win a national championship? That's always a hot topic. And, uh, and then, you know, we talk about some of the, uh, the chaos from last season. So Tim, you were, uh, you were there for, what did you think? What, what did these fine people have to, uh, to look forward to? Um, you know, just a cool insight, I think, from a guy who has gone out and started to do something, um, that he's been doing for quite a long time, but in a much different way, uh, with the athletics. So it's kind of cool to get a peek behind the curtain as to, you know, what he's dealing with, what his day is like, uh, you know, and, and kind of get a peek behind the curtain, too, on the Hokies football team and all of that tumult that was happening last year. Uh, you know, it feels like even to some extent maybe it hasn't ended yet, um, but really cool insight. I thought the interview uh, was really good, and, you know, I, I'm glad that we were able to get Andy on here to uh, talk VT football with the VT and ACC football podcast. Absolutely. So if you're joining us uh, today for the first time, as always, make sure you click that subscribe button, hit a hit a rating, uh, hopefully the five or the four star and, uh, you know, maybe maybe even a review. But that's all from us now. Let's uh, let's get on with the interview, Tim. Okay, very special guest joining us today. We have got Andy Bitter from The Athletic. Andy, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I haven't uh, done a podcast in a while. I hope I still have my podcasting chops. You know, it's pretty easy. You just sit there in a chair and talk about sports. So it's, It is, uh, but sometimes you, you got to get back in the rhythm of it, I think. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, um, you know, Andy, you've covered the Hokies since 2011. Started with the Roanoke Times. I think you, or I believe you started with the Roanoke Times. I know you worked with the Virginia Pilot for a little bit, but... Um, you know, before that, I believe you're a Wisconsin grad. I am. Yeah. 2001. Okay, so are you a Wisconsin native by chance? I'm a Minnesota native. Uh, Wisconsin, Wisconsin just happened to, uh, offer reciprocity in the same in-state tuition as with Minnesota. So it, it was a very attractive option at the time. Got it. So are we talking Vikings or Packers? I'm a, I am all Minnesota sports. Oh man. Uh, prof- professional wow. wise, uh, college. I, I do follow the Badgers. Okay. Okay. That's, that's disappointing to hear, but you know, that's disappointing. I'm, I'm a Packers fan. Well, um, then if you're a Packers you know. fan, you shouldn't be threatened by Vikings fans because the Vikings <laughs> I'm, I'm not at all. They mess it yeah. up. I mean, every you've year. got Kirk cousins. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> It's it's a special kind of a curse being a Vikings fan. It's it's nothing that any, like the Packers just brush it off their shoulders because I mean how many Super Bowls do you have in your in your history? Uh, we got four. And the I believe. Vikings. The Vikings obviously are an over, so there's not really much a Vikings fan can say to a Packers fan. Well, we we can't go any yeah. further without shouting out Garrett Bradbury at this point. I think the Vikings have a future All Pro at center there. 
at least they finally addressed their offensive line instead of just saying, hey, Kirk Cousins, drop back and just kind of pray for a couple seconds to be able to throw the ball. Well, that's what the Packers do, and we see how that's paying off for Aaron Rodgers there. <laughs> yeah. But, um, all right, so what, uh, just to kind of get a little background on you, what got you into uh, sports writing out of college? Uh, I think I'd always kind of liked doing it. Uh, I mean, if you go back to when I was a kid, I was like the, the kid who would keep an official score at the baseball game. <laughs> like I'd sit there and I'd have the scorecard and I, you know, when I went to the bathroom, I'd like make sure my parents like kept it while I was gone so that I wouldn't miss any of the action. So I feel like the seeds were always kind of there for it. And once I got into college, I just kind of, you know, in my freshman year, I tried writing for the student paper and I liked it. And, uh, you know, I figured that was a lot better than sitting at an office desk all day. Uh, and, and coming out of college, I just applied to places. And uh, the first place to actually hit was in Danville, Virginia. And I've sort of been down in uh, Virginia for, you know, 15 of the 18 years uh, since then. So, it, you know, it, it started small and it's kind of built up. And it, it's just been it's been something that seems like it's a lot more fun than having a regular job. So I, I've enjoyed it so far. Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't know too much about having a regular job, no, would we, Tim? <laughs> Yeah. Sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, I went back and I read your introductory article about joining the athletic and, you know, that was what, that was last June, July, July, 2018, early okay. July. I'm almost and one it, year. So it, it feels like the site has stayed relatively the same and, you know, it's, it's a, uh, a source for what they call diehard fans. Um, but they're really focused on fans outside of local markets or people that have moved outside of local markets like myself. You know, I live in Chicago uh, from Virginia originally. Um, so how has that really kind of changed your reader base maybe a little bit? And it, maybe it hasn't. Um, but then also just compared to what you were doing at the local level, what is your what is your day to day like now? Well, I think the readers, a lot of them are the same. And, and sort of our mission at The Athletic is to have good storytelling. That's what we want to do is we want to differentiate ourselves by telling stories and not just you know going to a press conference and writing when everybody's going to write off the press conference because that's just boring. You can get that anywhere. So we try to do stuff that's a little bit deeper dive into stuff, whether it's a statistical look or a, sort of a history story or just taking more time to do Absolutely a feature story not. and yeah, do it right because uh, we don't have to sort of be bogged down by the day-to-day stuff. And uh, it kind of allows you some freedom to do different kinds of storytelling and, and bigger stories. I mean, uh, you know, I did one recently just kind of looking at uh, recruits in Virginia and what's the best team you can put together from – you know, just recruiting the state. And that took a long, we're going to talk about that a little bit. That took a long time to research that. And it's not like I had people at the athletic breathing down my neck, like, Oh, what do you have for us today? They, they let me work on it for, you know, a solid week compiling the data and putting things together. And, you know, it's a, it's an interesting story for this time of year when there's not a lot going on. And, you know, I kind of like the freedom to be able to do something like that and not have to worry about, uh, you know, I can't even think of the, the kind of news items that go on this time of year. Like, oh, did a game time get announced? I have to write up a real brief on that or something. You know, just yeah, little, little tiny stuff that, you know, like Frank Beamer selling his house. Like, I don't have to write right. up a brief on that and, and put it in the paper. 
I don't have to go out to the Pulaski Yankees and do a season preview uh, like I used to do at my old job. So, uh, you know, I like writing that, and I think people have responded because I think there's a market out there for people that, you know, they want more than just what comes out of the press conference because a lot of that stuff is boring and it's sort of the, the same kind of quotes that you hear all the time. So, uh, a lot you know, of coach you speak. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, kind of out-of-town people. I, I think it's also good for people that, you know, like we said at the top, I'm a Wisconsin grad, so I like to read about Wisconsin, but I also am a Minnesota professional sports fan, and they have all those teams covered, and they have Wisconsin covered, and I can read about ACC schools. I mean, you can get all this stuff from the same site for, you know, I'll, I'll put in a plug here, a relatively low price, <laughs> which which is a nice thing. It's just nice to have it all in one spot like that and sort of have people pursuing those kind of uh, stories all at once. So I really like it. It's been a, a great place to work at. I think it's been the best place that I've worked at so far, which, you know, newspapers in the last 15 years have not been uh, the, no. ki- the no. kindest industry to employees. It's been a rough go. So uh, maybe I'm comparing it to that. Everything is just uh, great relative to that. But I, I've really enjoyed it so far. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to be a sports journalist like yourself coming out of college, you know, had the journalism degree and things like that. I actually started a TV station, but I uh, soon realized that, you know, maybe TV's not the place I want to be and kind of shifted gears just because it's it's completely it's a completely different experience when you're working full time compared to like an internship, at least, you know, from my standpoint. But what I wanted to talk about a little bit is there seems like there's this weird dynamic right now in not really just sports journalism but all journalism but you know something I've seen on Twitter recently is this you know read local hashtag and I just noticed it like a week or two ago and it seems like I don't know if it's like local papers think they're under attack against people like or companies like The Athletic but I'm of the viewpoint where you know I live outside of the area I grew up you know I'm an Orioles fan so if I go to the Baltimore Sun, I can read like two paragraphs and then boom, I have to be a subscriber to finish reading it. Right. And to me, I'm not going to subscribe to the Baltimore Sun. I'm much more likely to subscribe to The Athletic, which I am a subscriber along with Tim. Um, and, you know, they've got like a stable of writers. Um, it's much more interesting content for me just because, yeah, I do have interests obviously in the Mid-Atlantic. But I'm also very engaged on everything else happening kind of outside. So did you kind of feel that when you were at the Roanoke Times on the local level? And was that maybe why it was kind of a not so nice kind of split up? Well, it's kind of interesting where the, the, the industry is going right now. I mean, they sort of experimented with like a quasi paywall. When I was at the Roanoke Times, we could get a right. certain certain number of articles free, and it, it, I think it started at like fifteen a month, and then it was reduced to eight. They were all over the map on how many were free, so it still had a lot of readership from people. And let's just say it wasn't the toughest paywall to get around. Uh, you, you could circumvent it pretty easily with either like clearing your cookies or something like that. Like there's an easy way to reset the counter on that. They, I think, a lot of places have since gotten a little bit more strict with that. Uh, I think even the Washington Post now, you can't go incognito mode and just get around it. Uh, they have blockers right. in that can sense that sort of stuff. So I, I think it's sort of the industry catching up to what it should have done 15, 20 years ago instead of just giving away all its content for free, being like, hey, it costs money to report this stuff. I mean, these are careers behind this stuff, and the advertising dollars that are on the, the, uh, the Internet side of things isn't catching up 
to the declines in print. So I, I think it's sort of out of necessity uh, that a lot of these newspapers are catching up and doing the paywall thing and sort of promoting this read local. Uh, but I, I think part of it, too, is that they maybe missed uh, the opportunity. Uh, you know, newspapers had a sort of a monopoly for a while there on, you know, if you wanted to read about something, you had to go to a certain site. And they just sort of, I think for a while, took some readers for granted in that sense. It's kind uh, of like an Uber situation. Yeah. And, it, you know, people, I know there's sort of a lot of uh, newspaper reporters that are bitter about the athletic and all oh, it's trying to destroy the the industry and that's not it we're trying to modernize the industry we're tra- you know this competition is good it's good to like force uh companies to treat their employees pretty well and pay them a decent wage and ask people to pay to support that absolutely uh, you know i think that you know if you get the right price point the people are willing to do that especially uh, when it's supporting somebody's career like that, and and that's true for newspapers too. I would I would recommend to people to subscribe to newspapers, especially, you know, the read local hashtag. If you are uh, a person who lives in that area, there's so much more value to that newspaper from not just sports, but the news side of things, everything that comes with a newspaper that's relevant to you locally. But like you said, if you're not in the area. Maybe it doesn't make as much sense to subscribe to something like that, and that's where the athletic is really attractive. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just a shifting business right now. Like, I, I don't think, you know, when they started making, uh, you know, automobiles, that all the horse owners got up in arms about, hey, what are you doing? You're ruining the industry here. People looked at it as sort of the next wave of how things are evolving in in industry, and I, I think, uh, you know, newspapers and reporting is finally catching up to that. So I've always been curious, and I, I feel like when I was following you when you were at the Roanoke Times that, you know, you drive to a lot of the away games. Is that the case? I, I feel like one time you drove from, like, Syracuse back to Virginia. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> that is, that's a drive right there. It is a drive. Oh, well, when I'm going with Aaron McFarlane, our columnist at the Roanoke Times, we saw, it was a fun road trip. And, you know, when you're talking about buying plane tickets for two people, the cost ratchets up real quick. Uh, so it's a lot sure. cheaper to drive. Now that I'm going solo to a lot of these places, uh, it might make more sense to fly just because it's cheaper. But, you know, honestly, it was pretty fun going on road trips with Aaron. He'd always have all the casinos mapped out on the way that he'd want to stop <laughs> at. And, yeah. You know, it, it sure. kind of was like a throwback to my college days, like going on those kind of road trips to, to games like that. Uh, and I enjoyed it. You know, sometimes it's just more of a pain to fly than it is to drive somewhere. Uh, oh yeah, you know, we Tell drove. We it. drove to Notre Dame, and it's like, well, if you're going to go to Notre Dame, I guess you could fly for a really expensive flight out of Roanoke to Chicago, and then drive from Chicago to Notre Dame. It's like, let's just drive it. We'll go through West yeah. Virginia. Aaron will hit a casino. He'll really like that. I think we stayed in Toledo and hit a we hit a casino in Toledo as well. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, I mean, it, it was it's just those are fun trips. Those are fun times, uh, and, and every now and then recreate them now. But uh, you know, I don't mind driving uh, long distances like that. I'm sort of conditioned to it. Uh, maybe not as much as somebody like Doug Dowdy uh, from the Roanoke <laughs> Times, who I think drove to like like Omaha. I mean, he he drives to like Ooh, Texas wow. on some of these trips. It's absurd, but. Uh, you know, every now and then I don't mind a, a car ride like that. So take us through kind of game day from, from your lens. So like, what is, what does Andy Bitter's day look like when the Hokies have a game? Well, it's a lot less stressful than it used to be. Uh, 
you know, I arrive probably three to three and a half hours before the game. I'm just one of those people that likes to get, like, I just like to get there and get set up in the press box, even if I'm sitting there not really doing much for the next couple hours. It's usually me and David Teal, uh, <laughs> yeah. who, are, who are the early arrivers in the press box like that. And I just like it. I just like to hang out in the press box, chat with the other writers and stuff like that. You know, uh, before, when I was at the newspaper, I just have this mountain of stuff that I would have to write. And it would be a game story, game notes, you know, other breakouts, sometimes a sidebar that goes with it. And if it's a night game, it really becomes challenging because you got to sit there beforehand and you got to write some notes that you got to file at like the halftime or third quarter break. Uh, just You just write some stuff that sort of, you know, regardless of how the game turns out, would still hold up in the next day's paper. Uh, for the record, that was the worst thing that you ever had. Like, it was just so terrible to have to write that and then hope it holds up the next day. And it's yeah. like, why, why are you doing this stuff? That's part of the reason why The Athletic was so uh, refreshing because the game time comes now, and I'm not sitting there writing a running game story throughout the whole thing. I'm actually watching the whole game first. I mean, what a novel concept that is. <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, I tweet throughout, so it's, you know my thoughts are sort of on record there, and I can go back and reference that, but... Uh, now I'll go down with, you know, five minutes left in the game. I'll go down in the field. I'll get a little bit of color, just kind of see, you know, what's going on, what the mood is. I, you know, I watched last year's Virginia game. I saw basically the entire comeback and the overtime from the sideline. Uh, cause I had gone down there and I just, I had gone down there to point where I'm like, this game is over. I kind of assume it's over. And instead I had like a, a front seat view of the entire comeback, you know, the fumble that Bryce Perkins had. Uh, in the overtime was right in front of me. I mean, I was 20 yards away from that, watching that happen. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, yeah. these, these guys are spilling onto the field around me. And I'm like, what is that? Like, that was <laughs> unbelievable how that game turned out. And I was like right in the middle of it. And I think that made the right. story better because of that. But, but but after that, I'll go up to the press conference like everybody else. Uh, that takes about 30 minutes, whatever it is. And then go back. Now I'll go back up to the press box and I'll start my writing. At that point, whereas before I was plugging some quotes into a story that was basically already written. Uh, now I'm starting the story from having seen everything that's taken place and trying to put that all, distill it all into one good story that I read a day, uh, it, the day of the game. And, and typically I get out of there, you know, three, three and a half, sometimes four hours after the game ends. So uh, it makes for a long day in the press box. It's it's weird when you're you know the first one getting into the press box and then when the last one's leaving and leaving an empty stadium and it's completely dark and you go back to your your car in the the parking lot and it's pitch blackout. But uh, you know it's sort of at the same time sort of invigorating. I kind of like that whole thing. Uh, a little bit I miss the the sense of deadline writing that I had before because it just sort of gives you that adrenaline rush. Uh, that is hard. Thrill. Yeah, it's hard to describe. Yeah. But man, when you like nail a deadline story and hit it in, and you feel like you had a good lead and in a good setup to the story, like it is, it is a good feeling when you're coming out of there. And uh, now it's a little bit different because I can take some more time. I can write something a little bit more in depth and a little more polished. Uh, but uh, yeah, that that's a, a typical day covering a, a game at the Hokies. Yeah, that's awesome. So. Just, just kind of a random question before we jump into recruiting, because that's where a lot of our recruiting experts live. I think I know the answer to this one, but do you ever take a look at what's being said on message boards? Yeah, yeah, I always do. I think do it's, you? I think, okay. yeah, he I, stays plugged I'm so, in. I'm surprised about that. Well, I, yeah, I've got. I mean, I'm on a couple of those sites. I have a username and stuff. I'll post every now and then on there. 
Uh, I think it's it a it's hilarious sometimes. I mean, you can go on there, and my gosh, some of the discussions. I mean, back the cold back discussion throughout the entire offseason was just <laughs> hilarious to me. I mean, some people were making him out to be the next Heisman Trophy winner, and they some were, were saying some were saying he's never going to play here. And I'm like, it's probably somewhere in the middle between the two of these guys. <laughs> sure, uh, he's maybe like a Dustin Pickle. Yeah, type of guy. Uh, <laughs> it's hilarious to see kind of how things go. I mean, if you really want to laugh, you go to like the conference realignment board and see if they're still quoting, oh, gosh. if they're quoting people from that, that dude of West Virginia that's always wrong about a line, realignment. Like they're still like spinning these conspiracy theories to this day. Uh, but I, I think it's good to kind of just go there and get the temperature of the fan base every now and then. I know it's not always a perfect indicator of, uh, you know, how the fans are thinking or something like that. But, uh, you know, sometimes you go on there and you get some ideas, you get some, you know, what, what are people talking about? Or maybe something, uh, a post that you see on there sparks an idea somewhere else. And that, you know, you, I mentioned the recruiting story before. I mean, how many times have I seen people mention on there, like, oh, if we kept every recruit from Virginia here, we'd win a national championship. I'm like, well, oh, yeah. would they? I mean, that's been a thing that, running for 10 years now. I thought that was an interesting thing to look at. I mean, I'll be honest, that's sort of where the genesis of that idea came from. So, uh, you know, I think message boards are fine as long as you go in there knowing that they're pretty harmless and not to take sure. anything too seriously. But, uh, no, I enjoy it. I enjoy mixing it up with people every now on there. And then on there, it's, uh, when you're really bored, you go on there and then kind of like stir the pot a little bit and see how things go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That would be the most fun aspect of that for me, I think would be, uh, you know, twisting the knife a little bit when you can, it's always a good thing. So it's kind of a lead in cause we're going to talk about this Virginia recruiting story a little bit. And you've got, it's a two part series. Um, and you're clearly hearing the noise from the fan base. It's always, you know, you see a guy like Devin Ford leave the state, go to Penn state and Penn state's been, you know, plucking guys that we have on our radar quite a bit. Um, but just overall, what's been the feedback of those posts so far? I think people have liked it because I'm sure it's a question that they've asked themselves before is how good is the talent in the state of Virginia? Uh, You know, I think anecdotally you could go through and just pick out some stars in your mind and you go, man, man, that team would be great. But when you actually sit down and try to pick it out and see, you know, what offensive lineman actually panned out and what level of talent you actually had, it becomes a lot tougher to put together like a, a really good team. I mean, some years there's just, you just have this amazing offense and you kind of wonder about the defense. Then other years you have like three lines of defensive line, uh, all Americans almost. And then there's no quarterback <laughs> to, to right. kind of bring that team yeah. along. And I just, I thought it was kind of a fun look to, to look at the last 10 years and kind of see how that would have played out in, in a purely hypothetical situation. Cause I mean, nobody gets even half of the state's top recruits. I mean, if you, if Virginia oh, tech yeah. gets three of the top 10, it's doing pretty well. And I, I think there's sort of this, I don't know, people want to believe that there was some era where Virginia Tech was just getting like seven or eight of the top state's top ten. And that really has just never existed in its history. There was maybe a couple years, what was the year with like uh, Vince Hall and Xavier Adibi? Mm-hmm. And I think there was another, one, another guy who was yeah. way up there in the state. I can't remember if that was the Marcus Vick year or if that was a different year. There was a year where they had like three of the top five or maybe four of the top five. But, uh, you know, outside of that little stretch, there's it's it's always been kind of a pick and choose of the top ten. There's always been, you know, outside schools that have come in and taken it. So I, I feel like people are sort of 
hearkening back to these halcyon years that never existed in terms of right. recruiting. Uh, but I just thought I'd go back and take a look at it because it, it's kind of fun just to drudge up those old names and then, you know, just kind of wonder, oh, man, what if they all kind of play together on this all-star Virginia team? And as you pointed out, too, in the article, it's not just Virginia that hasn't done that. Really, no one puts up a wall around their state anymore. Um, you know, even the likes of Alabama, they're not pulling in, you know, 100% of the top 10 in Alabama, nor would they want to given the talent. But, I mean, that's that's nationwide. Nobody really has that kind of presence in recruiting anymore. Well, especially now. I mean, it, yeah. it used to be that, like, local was so big because you knew the guy, the guys better, you knew the coaches, you knew the area. Now, you know, somebody can tweet out their huddle tape. And all of a sudden, everybody's right. – I mean, it's just – there's ways to communicate uh, with any coach in the country right now if you want to. And I, I think it's a lot harder sure. to, you know, A, kind of keep those guys quiet if you're local and, and hope that nobody <laughs> else gets on to them. I think Virginia Tech right. succeeded for a while uh, like that. And, and B, it's a lot tougher for somebody that's uh, sort of a sleeper recruit not to blow up like that because, sure. uh, you know, if one guy gets on them – and it, it's tougher to keep your offer quiet because, like – uh, Virginia Tech offered this guy, then somebody else is going to get on it. And then, like, obviously, if Alabama comes in and offers it, the guy will sh- the guy will shoot up from a two star to a four star overnight. Right. Yep. So uh, we talk right. about that all the time. That's just sort of the nature of recruiting these days. It is. Well, you know, I is. think too. It's like you know, you mentioned like everybody thinks you know we had all these top guys from the state coming in 15 years ago. I think that just shows you how social media has kind of changed the game, because I just feel like people probably weren't paying as close of attention to recruiting back in the day because they just didn't have the mediums or the outlets to go and follow or they just weren't they're just misremembering things and so I also think you've got guys like a Cam Chancellor who was a two-star recruit or a Cody Grimm who was you know a walk-on and they come in and they're like high performers you know big contributors and people just kind of think back well you know he must have been a four or five-star recruit yeah I mean there's always under the radar guys that uh you sort of retcon how, how good they were back in the day. I mean, you just think of the legacy of uh, walk-ons that Virginia Tech has had, like John Engelberger, Will Montgomery, all these guys. Uh, that was sort of the MO of this program for the longest time, was take these unheralded recruits or guys that nobody's ever heard of, put them in this strength program, build them up, and they become really valuable uh, contributors by the time they were – uh, seen juniors and seniors here. So I think a lot of people like look at Virginia Tech's success and they think, oh, that stars, Michael Vick and D'Angelo Hall and all this stuff. It's like sort of the backbone of this program was built on those guys that nobody had heard of for a long time or a lot of schools overlooked and Virginia Tech gave them a chance. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think there's a little bit revisionist history sometime when you go back and look at, uh, you know, what made up those great teams that the Hokies had. Yeah, and I mean, point. the... the re- the response I came away with from your stories were, you know, hey, maybe maybe you could have won a national title. It's definitely it definitely wasn't a lock, but I felt like the 2011 team with uh, Russell Wilson had the best shot. But just kind of hitting on that Bud Elliott system that you referenced in the in the story, and I hadn't really heard of that in the past. And it you know it basically recruits um, or you know it states that you got to recruit the elite talent consistently. You know you're going to sign more four or five stars in two and three at a clip greater than about 50% of, you know, what you're getting in from a recruiting standpoint over a four-year period. One thing I didn't see, and I went and kind of checked SB Nation's, you know, archives, is there, I couldn't find a list of where every program ranked in 2018 or 2017. I did find 2016, 
Okay. And the Hokies were 15%. And so 50% is the benchmark to be competing for national titles. Where do you think Virginia Tech is today? I mean, I, I'm assuming you probably haven't crunched the numbers, but, you know, I, I felt like I'm always kind of like a uh, warm and cold guy on recruiting. I think it's very much about the system that comes in. Obviously, having talent is great, but just look at Florida State as an example. It doesn't always work for you. Where do you think the Hokies are today, and where do you think they're going in the future? It's higher. Uh, you know, you look at the last couple classes that Fuentes had. Uh, they've pulled in, let's say, like 19 four-stars or something like that in the last three classes. Uh, the 2016 class was not a great one. If you're still using the four-year thing, that would still be on the books for sure. this latest one. So I would imagine it's probably in the 20s percentile-wise uh, where they are with the, the, the blue-chip ratio. And that's still pretty good for Virginia Tech. I mean, like, like I said before, I mean, if you go back in the history, like Virginia Tech has never just had these uh, overwhelming four- and five-star classes. I mean, I, th- I think the the highest ranked class nationally that Frank ever had was like 14th, and that right. might have been and that might have been the only one that got in the teens. Maybe there was another one in there, but typically they're 20th to the to 30th, somewhere in that range. Uh, that's just sort of what Virginia Tech is in recruiting. And uh, so, I, why why is that? You think? Well, I mean, it's a combination of all sorts of factors. I mean, it's money. Uh, you know, the, the the biggest recruiting schools also have the most money to throw into staff and support staff and recruiting, all, all the, you know, stuff that, that goes into impressing recruits and building facilities. I mean, that, that all plays in the same pot. I think it's it's partially location. Uh, I mean, it, it's not just that Virginia Tech is sort of a geographically isolated school out here in the mountains. Because a lot of places are T- Tuscaloosa is not the biggest city right. in the world. It's they do not. they do pretty well recruiting wise, but Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, all those Florida, that's right in the heart of where all the four and five star guys are. You look at a map of where the the elite talent in the country is, and they're just sitting right in the middle of it. Uh, and you know, location still does matter quite a bit in recruiting. You get up to Virginia, it's a little more spotty. I mean, there's there's some guys out of the seven five seven up in northern Virginia, some in in the Charlotte area, North Carolina. But you know, let's just say there's not a lot coming out of Wise, Virginia, in the southwest area <laughs> of the state. I mean, it's rare to get a a recruit like James Mitchell. Uh, you know, at a big stone gap. I mean, that's a rarity that somebody of that talent level comes out of that area. So, you know, that's just a reality for Virginia Tech. And, you know, some of it is, uh, you know, the history of the program and sort of, uh, you know, prestige. You know, you go back to the NCAA video game, a school's prestige or a coach's prestige. I think that's factors in. I think they, hit, they hit it on the head there. I, I think there are just challenges that, you know, that a profile of the school that Virginia Tech has that, you know, realistically, it's probably never going to recruit like Ohio State or Alabama or LSU or the Florida schools. They're just sitting there. You know, you, you drive one hour from campus and you can hit 50 blue chip players right there. I mean, I think that's just, uh, you know, I think I've seen it said that people have done studies on it that sort of you are what you are in recruiting and, you know, barring some you know, crazy influx of something like say, like Phil Knight throwing money at Oregon like that. You, you just kind of stay the same level in recruiting from year to year. It doesn't change too much. So, uh, you know, I think if, if Hokies fans are looking at that, I think that you have to understand that 
yeah, you're probably not going to out-recruit those top teams that are out there, but you, you got to find a different way to compete with them. Uh, for the longest time, Frank Beamer did. I mean, he supplemented the few stars that they did get and the ones that did pan out with a bunch of developmental guys. And uh, so that's why you have, you know, the, the, the one year that they came the closest to the national championship, you have a, a transcendent player on offense in Michael Vick. Uh, you know, pretty good recruit they got out of Virginia, beat some other schools for, even though Ronald Curry was the bigger recruit in the state that year. Uh, you have one of the best defensive players uh, in school history, and Corey Moore, that who kind of fell in their lap. I mean, he was a guy that was committed to Ole Miss before Ole Miss got busted for some NCAA violations, and they didn't have room to sign him after they got scholarship reductions. So he would have been at Ole Miss if not for that. He actually... Uh, lost his scholarship there, went to a junior college, and ended up at, at Virginia Tech because I, I think Charlie Wilds had recruited him. Uh, he had some Murray State connection or something like that. So he kind of fell in their lap and turned into one of the best defensive players of all time uh, at Virginia Tech. And then around them, they had a bunch of guys that you know maybe weren't the highest recruited guys in, in their history. You know, guys like John Engelberger and a, you know, a bunch of – uh, defensive players. You know, granted, there were some guys that were pretty well-regarded recruits, but I think most of that team was, uh, you know, sort of you know to steal a fr- the lunch pail mentality. They went out there, they worked hard, they became really good players over time, but they weren't necessarily all looked like that coming out of out of high school. So I, I think that is maybe the formula that Virginia Tech needs to do is to continue to do that, hit on a few stars. It helps to really have a game. A, a, you know, a difference-making quarterback because so much of the game revolves on that one position. And I think, I think Fuente with the right guy could do that here. Uh, but I, I think, you know, for Virginia Tech to get a national title conversation, it's going to have to hack the system. It's not going to be able to do it simply by out-recruiting the blue bloods of, of college football out there. It's got to be a different way that they do that. And they almost did it once before. How likely do you think it is in today's age? Because as in like today's current system with four playoff teams you know they have to run the table and that's not really realistic right now uh with the clemson in the conference and um you know like i'm saying this year not gonna happen but next year is it a possibility or how likely is it to happen it's always a possibility but when it expands to that eight game playoffs like i'll tell you this fan base is very jaded right like, we just don't have a great history of performing in big games. I just don't feel like we have a great shot at a national championship in the way with how today's college football system is set up. Well, I'll be honest. It's a low, low, low percentage. And that's not exclusive to Virginia Tech. I mean, there's 10 to 12 teams out there that routinely you could say this they can win a national championship just because there's so few that recruit at that elite level. Uh, you mentioned having to run the table. I don't think that Virginia Tech necessarily needs to run the table because there have been plenty of one-loss teams that have gotten in. Uh, granted, it's like Ohio State and you know sort of the, the major names that are out there. But I, I think you can get in still uh, with the right one loss. I think that Depend, the, depends on the season, right? Right, like right. This year yeah, with I mean, their Clemson schedule, was able no to way. do it not too long ago. I right. think I think the bigger issue becomes once you get in. You not only have to beat one elite team, you need to turn around and do it again a week and a half later. Uh, and right. that's where sort of this, you know, needing to have that elite talent on your roster comes in. 
because those that really shows up in a situation where you have to win two games like that back to back. I mean, you look at the the regulars in the playoff right now: Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, schools that have done that. Uh, who have been the teams that have crashed the party? You know, Michigan State did it one year, got run off the field by Alabama. I think it was. Washington yeah, did it. Wa- Washington did it one year. I think also lost to Alabama. I can't remember who they lost to that year. It wasn't particularly close. So the schools that have not sort of fit that profile of having so much, you know, four and five star talent on their rosters, they've gotten in those games. They've just laid eggs. So and it becomes hard because you not only have to win that first game in the semifinals, you have to then win it again in the championship. I think it becomes very, very difficult for a school uh, of Virginia Tech's profile. Whereas you know in the BCS. You know, you get the right year, you run the table, and you know a Big East that wasn't that strong in 1999. Uh, you don't have to win a championship game at that point. You get placed in the one-two matchup against Florida State, and you're winning after three quarters. I mean, man, they were right there. That was really close. And I, I kind of have my doubts of whether Virginia Tech is a school that's capable of getting back there. I, I never want to say never. Uh, because you know somebody will come up and surprise you, and, and it'll come out of nowhere, and it'll it'll break this blue chip system, and people say, "Ah, oh, I see, it doesn't work." There's there's a, an exception to the rule, and there's no reason that can't be Virginia Tech. But I, I think it just is. It's very very difficult. Yeah, well, and I think for Virginia Tech specifically, in order for us to accomplish something like that, I think we would have to carve out an identity, maybe a little bit better than we have now. I don't think we're going to end up recruiting much higher than, say, around 15th in the country. I think that's probably our ceiling every year. Um, But if we can recruit toward an identity and a scheme better than we have and kind of figure out who we are as a football team, that'll go a long way. Uh, Another point I'd like to make is some people reference Clemson as saying, oh, well, look at where Clemson was 10 years ago when Virginia Tech is kind of around that stratosphere now. You know, Virginia Tech, uh, known for choking and big moments. Clemson, Clemsoning was a thing up until six years ago where, you know, every time on the big stage, Clemson was having those same issues. What I don't think people realize, though, is the resources that Clemson has had for quite a long time. Um, They have a lot of money in that athletic department, and and they were just a sleeping giant. And I I don't see Virginia Tech and Clemson as eight years, eight to ten years ago, being all that alike at this moment. They were very similar like seven or eight years ago revenue-wise. You know, right. They they were right about the same, and I think that's why a lot of the comparisons. I even wrote something like, if Clemson can do it, you know, why can't Virginia Tech do it? And there are some key sure. some key differences there. I think Clemson's recruiting ceiling was always a little bit higher. Sure, uh, I think they had recruited. You know, they hadn't succeeded with these kind of classes, but I want to say Tommy Bowden at least had some top ten classes when he was there, even if the Tigers weren't that good on the actual field. Uh, you know, they have their IPTE, their I pay ten a year. Uh, fundraising right, that's program that's that's been, that's been going for a long time yeah. and they really tapped into that recently uh, you know you look at their stadium down there i want to say it's 80,000 plus i mean that feels a lot sure. more like an sec type school uh when i was down there you know I, I think the joke is kind of that you know clemson is auburn with a lake they're <laughs> i mean they're <laughs> essentially the same school sure. uh you know so i i feel like that was a little bit different and like i said i mean it's it's kind of right there in the smack dab in the middle of where all those top recruits are. And you say, oh, well, you know, Clemson's kind of a, a rural campus. It is, but it's two hours to Atlanta. You know, it's right near right. the Georgia border. And Georgia is, you know, there's just a wealth of talent in Georgia right now. 
Yeah, uh, Georgia's is has come up, especially in the last ten years. Georgia's exploded talents wise. Yeah, it's huge for Clemson. And, and then you know, as they've gotten that success, now they're more of a national brand, and they can expand out to that. But uh, you know, I think there are some similarities similarities there. But I do think that Clemson just had a, had a higher built-in ceiling than Virginia right. Tech did. So yeah, right. that that's the difference I see there. Perfect. Yeah, I mean, it also feels like Virginia Tech has always been a team that it just can't seem to be capable on both sides of the ball at the same time. So like when we were in college from <laughs> 2006, you know, graduated in 2010, so football season 6 through 9. You know, that 2007 Virginia Tech defense, I mean, probably one of their better defenses that they've ever fielded. Offensively, you know, they were pretty much a disaster. But it just seems like I feel like this year it's the offense, you know, if the defense can really step up and, you know, compete and play consistently that's really all i'm asking for is consistent i'm not even looking for a top 10 defense like we're used to in blacksburg you know i think they could make some noise but that's just historically it feels like you know outside of the national championship season that they've just they're overridden with talent on one side of the ball and there's just not much to kind of tap into on the opposite yeah that that balance would be something good for the program to have i think when they hired fuente you know, they were looking at, hey, Bud Foster has done this for two decades. Now, right. he, he's put national championship caliber defenses on the field quite a bit. Uh, and right. then He runs of, the defense, you run the offense type of And deal. then sort of once Fuente got here, that you know, they were good, really good two years ago, but it's it, all of a sudden you don't have that defense that's been there. But I think the plan was to supplement that Bud Foster defense, which, you know, quite honestly never relied on the, the best talent out there to succeed bud always could patch it together and find guys that really underappreciated that fit his his system very well and pair it with justin fuente who had put together an elite offense at memphis one that could score with the best of them in the country with you know he didn't have top tier guys at memphis either uh i think the hope was that you get both those guys on the same staff that both of them could maybe find a way to have that success on their side of the ball without necessarily recruiting at an elite level i mean it, it would help to have more top tier guys like that but uh if you have uh, coaches that have done it without that before or found a way to be productive uh that that would be the perfect marriage and it looked really good there for a second and then last year was a disaster uh, i still think it could be a pretty good pairing uh, if you give them time and give them some guys on the roster that get developed over time no doubt and that kind of takes us into last season so you know, just kind of want to get your take, you know, this time last year, things were starting to kind of fly off the rails. We had the Galen Ware situation with the uh, recruiting scandal, you know, his extramarital affairs scandal, I should say, on the recruiting trail. You know, we had the Adonis Alexander um, academic issues, Mooke Reynolds getting kicked off the team, you know, Josh Jackson's, you know, academic eligibility was in question. And then, you know, jump into the season you got the Trayvon Hill getting kicked off the team after the ODU game. And then Josh Jackson goes down, you know, breaks his leg. Hokies end up going six and seven. Their worst season record-wise in 25 years. Regular season-wise, match 2012, 14, and 15. Um, so I think some people are soon to forget that those weren't really great seasons either. They no. did maintain the 26 straight seasons of a bowl. Extended the win streak over UVA, of course, to 15 games. But... You know, what was it like to cover the team at the time? And, I mean, did it just seem like there was a dark cloud just looming over Blacksburg? And, I mean, that's what it felt like on the outside. 
A little bit. I mean, it, it did, did kind of seem like the perfect storm of all these uh, things coming together at once where, uh, you know, I think going in, the coaches, or at least Fuente, was a little wary of the, the senior leadership on the team uh, or the veteran leadership on the team, something that, that played out horribly with, you know, Mook Reynolds getting kicked off the team after his drug arrest, uh, you know, which was eventually resolved. But at the time, it's one of the guys that sort of is on thin ice there getting arrested like that. I mean, I don't really know what choice they had other than, than to kick him off the team with a felony charge like that. You know, Trayvon Hill was a guy they were leaning on to sort of mature and, and grow up a little bit, and he didn't quite get there. Uh, and he got dismissed from the team. Jackson, Yeah, Jackson getting hurt. I mean, all this stuff just kind of came together in the worst way. And uh, not only that, but it's like the guys that they had coming up weren't just guys who had not played before or like, you know, sometimes you lose a bunch of seniors, but you have a wave right behind them that have sort of been waiting in the wings, uh, you know, biding their time. I think I go back to like when Jack Tyler graduated at linebacker and you go, Oh, that's a veteran guy that's gone. Well, you had Chase Williams coming up behind him who had sort of been groomed for that role. Uh, who was a redshirt senior had played a little bit. Uh, you know, was a veteran guy who was, who was used to college football well, last year you had some guys, you had a bunch of guys go to the NFL. Uh, some had graduated, some went early. Some guys get dismissed from the team. And the guys that are replacing them have never played in college football at all. A lot of them. I mean, it's freshmen or sophomores that are starting for the first time uh, when they're out there. And when the only one who's, or the only two that have really played any kind of football in that defense is Ricky Walker and, and Reggie Floyd. Obviously, there was some other ones that were in there as well. But, I mean, it's just a lot of youth to have all at the same time. And, uh, you know, it, it was bizarre because for for so long, that was the one constant in Virginia Tech that you could rely on was the defense. I think that's what made last season so so weird was that it's not just that they were losing. It was that they were losing in such a weird way that was foreign to Hokies fans. They were like, wait, wait they gave up 52 yep. points to Pitt? They gave, right. they, they gave up 600, like, how many rushing yards did they have on that one? <laughs> right. it's, like, yeah. I was, you know, you know, taking notes in that game, it seemed like every time I looked up, there was an 80 yard touchdown run. I mean, it was just, it was astonishing. I'd never seen a defense play like that. Certainly not a Virginia tech defense. Uh, and then you add on to it, the, you know, the offensive, you know, they go into the year with Josh Jackson, he gets hurt and Ryan Willis played pretty well at times and not so great at others. And uh, it was just an inconsistent group. One that, I mean, you know, there were some games you're like, man, this is really coming together. It looks like they could be pretty good. And then just, it just falls off a cliff in the second quarter and they never recover from it. Uh, and I think, you know, I think part of that is, uh, you know, there are a lot of young guys that were not used to how to handle adversity. And sometimes something you get hit in the face and you know, what, what is your plan after that? A lot of guys aren't used to what to do after they get hit in the face like that. So uh, it just seemed like it was a season that spiraled out of control. And no matter what the, the coaches try to do to, to remedy the situation, they just couldn't get a hold of it and, and turn things around. And, uh, I think it's interesting. I, I think, you know, a lot of people are down on the Fuente hire. You know, they go, oh, he's gone from 10 wins to nine to six. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, even the offseason, like, oh, he's disappointed so far. And I go, I don't know if that's true. You know, he's won 25 games in three years. It just feels disappointing because of how last season went. But, you know, like you mentioned, this wasn't like a, uh, you know, a finely tuned Ferrari that he took over when he got here. This was a six and six team in the regular season for three of Frank Beamer's last four years. So uh, I, I feel like there was going to be a roster reckoning at some point. Uh, usually you see that right away with the head coach. 
Uh, for some reason with this Hokies group, it wasn't like that. But uh, as some of the character guys that are, are, you know, maybe not quite high character guys kind of petered out in the program, some of those thinner recruiting classes uh, at the end of the Beamers days kind of got into their upper classes and, and didn't pan out quite that well. I think it just all caught up in, in one ugly season. And, uh, you know, Virginia Tech fans probably uh, couldn't have been happier to put that one in the rearview mirror. Yeah, no well, question. it was it was kind of a season two where it just felt like, you know, nobody knew on the outside of the program what was going on, but everybody just assumed, you know, there must be like some kind of culture issue, locker room issue. And then we had the off season this year with the transfer portal and it just started getting loaded up. And there's a guy in particular, you know, Eric Kuma, who seemed to be kind of very vocal uh, on Twitter, and it seemed like he was playing this little game to me. And I'm not one to typically follow players, like every move about what they're saying, but he just seemed to be kind of, I don't know, cryptic on Twitter. And he ends up at Old Dominion. I don't think that is what he set out to do. Do you think he kind of got in over his head a little bit, maybe rubbed a few teams the wrong way about kind of how he was handling the situation? Or what what happened with Eric Kuma? You know, I, I don't think it's that. I, I think that some of these guys go into the transfer portal and they, they maybe have big things and big schools that they want to get to. And the reality is that, you know, spots fill up at these schools. I, I don't think a lot of these guys realize that, you know, transfers count as initial qualify, counters the following year. So when you sign a full class and bring in a bunch of transfers, you can't bring in more than 25 the following year. So if you sign a big signing class and you can't back count a couple, like, you know, there's some creative accounting you can do with that stuff. There just aren't a ton of available scholarships at a lot of these schools, even if they're under the 85 man limit. So I think some of that had to do with it. I, th- I think some of it is, you know, Kuma is not the fastest receiver. I think that's what a, a lot of guys are looking for is maybe a, a faster receiver, especially if they're going to take a transfer like that. Uh, you know, he, he would be a guy at ODU that I think could, could play right away. But, uh, you know, places like Notre Dame where he was looking at, Penn State, I think another one. I mean, they've got some pretty good players at those spots. And, uh, you know, I think Kuma would have played for Virginia Tech. I also think he would have been pushed a little bit by – you know, an emerging Trey Turner, uh, somebody like that, challenging for a starting spot. So I don't think it's a guarantee they would have had this, like, major role uh, at Virginia Tech. I think he probably would have had a role. I don't think it maybe would have been as prominent as in the past. But, uh, you know, sometimes I think you get in there and, and maybe, you know, school's opinions of you aren't the same as uh, maybe what you hope to get when you go into the transfer portal. I think that's part of the process in this first year, though, is uh, everybody's going in and there's going to be a ton of guys in there that don't have a spot when the music stops uh, and, and maybe some guys that don't end up at as big a schools as they thought originally, I think everybody sort of, it's a feeling out process of how this whole transfer portal works. And uh, I think you might see more of an equilibrium in the future. And, and maybe guys are maybe a little more hesitant going in there uh, when there's such an uncertainty on the other side of it. So what do you think happened with Bryce Watts? Because I have a sense, I mean, my, my theory on him is, you know, he said he was going to move closer to home um, with his girlfriend's pregnancy. You know, it seemed like a legit excuse. And then, you know, he ends up going to North Carolina, which last time I checked, that's a little bit further away yeah, just um, south. To, to New Jersey. But the sense I was getting is everybody was saying he had such a bad spring. 
I feel like he kind of saw the writing on the wall that he wasn't going to necessarily be the starter going into next season, or at least maybe, like you said, getting pushed a little bit more than he would have liked. You think that's what happened there, or why Why did what happened happen? Yeah, I'm not really sure. Uh, all indications from who I spoke to uh, was that when Watts announced he was transferring, that the coaches fully believed that it was uh, to go get up closer to home in New Jersey. And I, I honestly think he went into it looking to do that because, I, uh, you know, we do these stay of the program uh, things and, and somebody on our staff is doing Rutgers and the Rutgers staff apparently thought very convincingly that he was going to end up there at that point. Sure. And I think he even took a visit up there when he did it. So I, I don't know what happened after that. You know, Mac Brown is a smooth talker. I mean, that guy, <laughs> that guy can recruit. So I don't know if like, you know, Watts got on campus and he's like, oh man, this guy's, yeah, I don't know. I don't know the reason why he, he ended up where he ended up. Uh, I think it, I think he was going to be challenged this year coming up. You know, it would have been nice to have somebody with that experience and, and somebody that played that many games last year. And I think he did improve a little bit. I know he had a rough spring game, but I, I think still uh, through the course of spring that the coaches were pretty pleased with his progress and where he was going. Uh, so you don't get better by losing that experience. You certainly want to have that in the mix, but I think there's some other guys, you know, Jeremy Webb, if he's healthy or money Chapman, the Deer Thompson, uh, Javon Quillen's an option as well. I, I think there were some other guys that may have challenged him and, and may have stolen a little bit of, of reps away there. I don't know if that factored into his decision or not, but, uh, you know, I, I think Virginia will, Virginia tech will be fine without him at cornerback, but it, it, it was an odd situation with him departing when he did and kind of, how the, the story of all that broke out. Where are we at with the Brock Hoffman situation? They're still waiting, uh, from my understanding. I, I asked about it. Has the uh, uh, NCAA got any more doctors on staff to evaluate? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, that whole process seems uh, flawed, to say the least. Sure, uh, I was in there. That. I was in there today doing for, for a different story. I was into the, at the athletic complex, and I asked about today, and they said they're still waiting on both Hoffman and Burmeister. So I don't know if those were submitted at the same time or if the NCAA gets to them at the same time. I don't know what additional documentation they have to provide to the NCAA in this appeal. Uh, I don't know if Virginia Tech is just BSing me in this whole thing and they just want to announce it at the same time or, or holding that off. But uh, from my understanding, or you know, my sort of questioning about that, they haven't gotten an answer yet. Uh, and with the NCAA, who knows how they're going to rule. I mean, it's, it seems like it's an arbitrary spin of the wheel. And even the guys that get approved, you know, Tate Martell at Miami, I think everybody kind of assumes that they know the case that he put into the NCAA, but it is a, a private uh, process. I mean, it's not something that they announce their reasoning and why a guy gets approved and why this guy gets turned down. Uh, you know, if the player wants to announce why that when they were approved to turn down, they can. But, you know, I don't think anybody's ever really heard the full story with Tate Martell or the full story with Justin Fields and why they got approved. Uh, but the NCAA does, it does have an image problem with this thing because on the face of it, it does look like the high-profile schools get their guys approved and the ones that don't, don't. Right. Uh, that's problematic. I mean, that's a, a, you know, an optics thing that could be a problem going forward. Uh, I think with the loosening of the transfer language that they have this year and, you know, mitigating circumstances, and if you, you hire a lawyer, you can kind of word it correctly and, and put the, the right pressure on the NCAA to approve it. I think they're sort of in this, you know, sort of no man's land of, you know, they used to be too restrictive on, 
you know, waiver appeals and transfers, and now it seems like they're a little too loose on. You know, they're going to have to find some middle ground that's a little more hard and fast with the rules than what they have now, because uh, I think there was. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think there was one guy recently that transferred from Maryland to Kent State, and his reasoning was like, uh, you know, depression from how the whole uh, the offensive lineman that that died up there in in the training, and you know, it was stemmed from that, and he said he was depressed and how the coaches treated them and stuff like that, uh, and that was his reason for the immediate waiver, and the NCAA denied it, and that seems heartless. I mean, that seems heartless at the time. Uh, and, you know, they say, well, it's their documentation of it. I mean, that's a hard thing to document. At the same time, you know, anybody could just say that if they wanted, if, they, you know, that that's the reason they wanted to get immediate eligibility. It's impossible for the NCAA to rule on that just based on somebody's word. So, right. you know, I don't know what they have to do at this point, but it, it seems like the, the status quo is just this weird sort of limbo where, you know, you never really know why a guy gets approved. You, you sort of know why guys don't get approved, but it still seems kind of stupid when they don't. I think they need to come up with a better way of doing it where they either just allow free uh, free transfer, one-time transfer, guys are eligible right away, and now the coaches are going to push back against that or something where you can transfer, but then you get the year back at the end of your, your time there. I don't know. There's got to be some other way to do it than what they're doing, though. Just, it seems like the NCAA is really bad at PR because, like, the the Maryland thing, like, I don't care what the guy's reason was. If he doesn't want to be there after what happened, he should be allowed to transfer without penalty. No question. You know, I don't really care what the issue is. And with the Brock Hoffman thing, you know, we, we know what that's about with the, with the medical hardship waiver being, you know, five miles outside of the radius, but... You brought it up with the the Maryland guy going to Kent State. If Tate Martell or Justin Fields is choosing Toledo, I think they're sitting out a year. That's just my opinion. Probably, and you know, the, if they're going to Toledo instead of uh, you know Ohio State, you're talking about completely different resource levels of those schools. Where right, you know, Toledo's probably got one person that's handling everything that's going on with the school. Where <laughs> Ohio State could put somebody specifically on it with a lawyer at his side, telling them, you know, that's just sort of. That's the advantage of being the deeper pocketed school. Yeah, no, no sure. question about that. It's just, you know, they've seemingly, at least from the outside looking in, set such a weird precedent with some of the decisions they've made in the past that now it's what real, what is really needed is transparency. And I don't know if we're ever going to get it, but these decisions, none of it adds up. And it's, you know, for us sitting on the outside, it's extremely frustrating to see these guys with good cases uh, or with bad cases, some going past, some getting denied. It, it we need transparency, and we're, we're nearing a breaking point where something's going to have to change because it seems that with each decision that's being made, there's bigger and bigger backlash nowadays. So hopefully they're able to get the situation straight, but I just have a hard time imagining a, a world in which Brock Hoffman is going to be told that he can't play this year. Yeah, it's strange. I, I, I will say that it's tough situation for the NCAA to be in. First of all, the NCAA just goes by the rules that the school set. So it's not like the NCAA is making these rules. The schools are like, oh, man, we just have to live by these rules. It's like, well, the schools make the rules, and they, they make them so they're not too harsh so that the schools can work around them in certain situations. Uh, and the other part is, I mean, they have made some changes to those rules that have benefited athletes. I mean, the transfer portal, it used to be you had to ask permission from your coach to be contacted by other schools, and now that's just gone. You just tell the coach, put me in the portal, 
they can't block you or anything like that. So they're moving in the right direction and sort of, uh, you know, giving some freedom to these players about movement between schools, but they still haven't ironed out all the kinks with it. I think it's showing up this year in, in all these cases. All right, so that was part one of our sit-down with Andy Bitter. Tim, what were some of your uh, key takeaways? The key takeaway is, one, it's just really cool to have uh, the beat writer for the Hokies on the podcast. Again, I know I mentioned that as we were going in. Um, I thought that was great. Uh, You know, all in all, I think my favorite part of, of everything was kind of the review of last season, and I know... Some of the stuff that was going on was very unhokey-like, as far as you know, getting beaten the way we were getting beaten, um, giving up the amount of points we were giving up. It was all uncharted territory last year, and um, it was kind of nice to to get it. Like I said, and before we went in, it kind of nice to get a look at what was going on um, and, and get to know Andy a little better. How about you? Yeah, you know, I'm always uh, I'm always interested in like the day to day of of uh, people in different roles, especially in the sports industry. So. Learning a little bit about his background and, you know, what a game day looks like and, uh, you know, just his take on the athletic was very interesting. And then, you know, from the recruiting standpoint, I thought we got a lot of great information there. Um, a guy who's engaged, I was pretty surprised that he uh, kind of takes a look at the message boards. I, would, I was not expecting that, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, that you got to stay away from those in some cases, man. It can but get a I mean, crazy. hey. It's it's the world we live in, right? It's yeah. it's you, you got to have content. So you know, thinking about it now, it's like, well, yeah, he makes a pretty good point. You know, there's you're you're dealing with a lot of fans. You know, let's uh, let's get a pulse on what they're talking about. Why not do a story? So that's one of the uh, one of the luxuries he has at uh, at working at the Athletic compared to um, more of a local newspaper. So yeah, and you yeah. can see some of that flexibility in those articles. And I mean, the one that we talked about regarding the can you win a national championship with Virginia recruits. Um, I thought the article itself was really well researched and, you know, there's some number crunching going on and it's all fancy. Um, Really appreciated some of that input. But, you know, for me, the big takeaway there is I think you can, I think Virginia Tech's in a really unique position to win a national championship. And I think they could do it with the bulk of, you know, Virginia recruits. And if the years line up correctly, I think all of that's great. Um, and hopefully we're able to figure out a system to maximize some of this talent. Cause I think, as we mentioned in that podcast, Virginia tech is really going to be a ceiling of about 15th to, to 20th in recruiting, but you can turn those programs around into pretty good, uh, national powerhouses. And, and Virginia tech was able to do it, uh, in the, you know, the early two thousands to the, you know, the late 2010s, um, but yeah, we'll see what happens. And, and those are the kind of articles that you get on The Athletic. And I know we gave them a shout out already. But guys, if you're not doing it, you're going to want to go ahead and, and throw some money at a subscription on The Athletic. One, it's cost like the cost of, of a cup of coffee a month. But two, you're getting articles from these guys on the local perspective, the national perspective. Um, and, you know, you're getting beat writers from professional teams, college teams. You're getting the national college football guys. It's The value just is through the roof. Absolutely. And to go ahead and wrap it up, we are Chowder and Grits, the podcast for ACC and Hokies football. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, Google Play Store, or Stitcher. And then, of course, you can drop us a rating, either a five-star or a four-star. Prefer the five, obviously. Click that subscribe button. 
and uh, leave us a review. But uh, coming up on Monday, we've got part two of the Andy Bitter interview. We are going to talk about 2019 expectations, take a look at the offense, the defense, and then we're going to go a little bit of a rapid-fire session that uh, that was a pretty good time. So this is us signing off. 